Well, good morning, everybody. If your Bibles are open to John chapter 17, we are going to look at verses 7 and 8 of this high priestly prayer of Jesus this morning. If you're a visitor and it's your first time here at church, we want to say a special warm welcome to you. If you're a visitor, you haven't been here in a while and it's your first time to our new facilities, a, a warm welcome to you as well. There are some cards in the pocket of the chairs in front of you. If you are brand new to the church and you'd like us to pray for you or stay in touch with you in some way, please let us know. We'd love the opportunity to do that. And if you have something you'd like us to pray about, we'd love to hear from you as well, as we believe there is power in prayer, which segues nicely to what I want to preach about this morning, because the title of my sermon is this, Christ prays. In fact, we Peter just read it in John 17, verses 7 and 8, Christ prays that his mission will be our mission. I want you to hang on to that, because if you'll allow me this morning, I do want to ask us a question. It's interesting when I heard uh, John introduce uh, the service this morning, and he asked of those of you that might be here hurting and various things. I've already had people at the door tell me this morning of things that they have experienced, gone through the loss of loved ones, the struggle physically with sickness and illnesses and setbacks. I've alluded to this before, but I do want to ask you as we set up our passage for this morning, and that's to get you thinking about the idea of having someone pray for us or asking someone to pray for us. There's a real power in it, isn't it? There's something powerful about it. Even last night, Amanda asked us on our Facebook page to pray for Jimmy and Noel. If you've noticed, they're not here this morning because Jimmy's mom was taken to the hospital by ambulance, and instantly we asked for people to pray. I know that I texted Jimmy. I know Shane texted Jimmy, and we were bantering back and forth, getting updates. How many of us are praying? And I know that Erica is here with her children, but Tim is at home, may even be watching online if he's up to it as he battles cancer and he's going through the throes of chemotherapy right now. How many of us have prayed for Tim and Erica? And by the way, just as an update, Tim texted me last night and said they did another um, test and the tumor has shrunk dramatically, which is an answer to prayer. We want to continue to pray that. Yes, praise God. Every time I text or speak to Tim, though, he'll always text me back with requests or comforted, uh, tell me about how he is comforted by the knowledge of people that are praying for him. A little while ago, uh, Matt Leahy, we just prayed for him in Kilbride Community Church. I remember the day that Matt came to the office, and he couldn't wait to tell me about a powerful event that had happened when he was outside and a lady was walking her dog. And He has talked loft about how Charlotte and Cora are great little icebreakers and and little evangelists, and they love dogs. And so Cora immediately went up and asked if she could pet this dog, and that created a conversation to which the lady started to share with Matt about some of the struggles in her life and some folks in her family who were sick and ill. And one of the things that Matt does very well, he asked this lady on the spot, could I pray with you? She was somewhat shocked and taken aback. But she did agree, and so Matt proceeded to pray for her, and Matt said that when he said in Jesus' name, amen, and he looked up, the woman was weeping. There's power in prayer. 
There's power in being prayed for. Whether it's illness or tragedy, trauma, depression, whether it's times when we are hurt emotionally or physically, whether it's unexpected events, whether it's desperation. I know in my life as a Christian and especially as a pastor, I've gotten countless emails, text messages, and phone calls. I've been at times as well the requester as many a times as I've been asked to pray. But I have to be honest, and I hope you will be as well this morning. While I've known the concept of Jesus praying for me, well, most of my life, to be honest, the truth is if I'm going to be completely transparent and vulnerable before you this morning as an audience, I've given very little thought to the idea that Jesus actually prays for me, or that Jesus, while on planet earth, prayed for me and over me. You see, it's one thing to ask for prayer. We are all used to it. We often have done it. It's quite another to believe folks actually do it. But there's an even another level of intimacy and relationship, right? And that's to actually be there and hear what is prayed. I believe the reason that Matt found that event with this lady so powerful, it wasn't just that he said, I promise to pray for you, and then she walked off. He said, can I pray for you? And right then and there prayed over her, and she heard him pray over her. And that's powerful. How many times in my almost nine years here, men, have asked husbands and ladies, have asked wives, and something I still struggle with, and you can talk to Debbie about it as well, and I need to do more of it with Debbie, and Debbie to do more of it with me, is to pray with each other for each other, to actually hear each other pray with and for each other. So, when we come to John chapter 17, We are actually faced not just with another chapter in John's gospel. It's not just two verses of the Bible. You and I are confronted with the greatest example of what's called encounter theology in the Bible. For it's not that Jesus prayed for us or is even now praying for us. We'll come to that in a second. But what would it be like for you and I to really know, really, really know that Jesus not only prayed for us, but is right now praying for us? After all, we're told a lot about Jesus and his spirit in regards to prayer and representing us, right? In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Jesus is called our advocate when the same apostle said, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, why is that important? Well, John explains it. Because he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That word means the substitute, the replacement. Jesus replaced himself with our sin. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Paul would tell the Roman church in Romans chapter 8 that Jesus isn't just our advocate, he's also our intercessor. Who is to condemn? How many of you have felt condemned this week? How many of you have felt like the sting of guilt, the lying of of Satan to, to feel shame? And so Paul says, well, who is to condemn you, Christian? Christ Jesus is the one that died for you, more than that, who was raised, more than that, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Then, Hebrews chapter 4, the great uh, manuscript of a sermon, the preacher tells us in Hebrews 4 that Jesus is our great high priest. Not just our high priest, our great high priest. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, what's the result of that? Let us, you and I, Christians, hold fast our confession. So what is our confession? This is it. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. See, I don't think I have to ask any of you to admit to me that there were times today, this week, this past month, this year, that you have gone through bouts of weaknesses, that you have not felt weak, that you have not known the weakness of your flesh, the weakness of your spiritual life, the weakness of relationships, the weakness. But how many times when we go through that that we actually know, Jesus knows my weakness, and we don't think that's negative. See, we often think God knows everything, and it scares us. Here we're supposed to see that God knows everything, and He loves us. Let that sink in for a minute. He's not unable to sympathize with our weakness, but here's the hope. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So this motivates us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. So we can come boldly to God and say, Lord, I need mercy. I need you to hold back what I do deserve. I have screwed up and I deserve justice. I deserve a declaration of guilty. But God says, no, in my mercy, I will not do that. But then it says also, and find grace to help in our time of need. Now, what's grace? Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. God lavishes his love on us. He gives us the perfection of Jesus. So what would it do, or let me say it this way, what should it do, or should it not be, profoundly interesting for us than to know this? Not just that Jesus prays. I think if I pulled the room, most of you would say, I know Jesus prays for me. But how many of you have given thought drawn comfort, been challenged and by, or motivated from what it is that Jesus prays for you and I. Now, while you mull that over, let me meddle a little bit deeper, make us all a little bit uncomfortable by asking a question that often doesn't get asked explicitly in church anymore. It's asked in roundabout ways, or it's asked in manipulative ways, or it's asked in ways that you are supposed to feel uncomfortable. But let me ask you this. Are you a Christian? Now, I mean, let's put it all on the table. How many of us here today, we would say today in front of all these witnesses and before God that we believe that the Bible is right and is the Word of God. We also believe that the Bible says that we are required. Now notice, not a suggestion. We're required to confess our sins to God. That is, we must admit 
openly before God that we have broken the law of God. We have defiled his holiness. We have quite literally sinned against God, as David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. One of the most powerful examples of this is found in Luke 18 when Jesus gives that example between the Pharisee and the tax collector. And Jesus says to the crowd, and particularly to one man that was questioning him, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So we would say to be a Christian, you must admit you are a sinner, not just that you have sinned. You didn't sin and become a bad person. You're a bad person, thus you sin. That's the meaning of I am a sinner. It, he was describing his whole being, but not only that, then we also believe that you must admit and cry out, then I need forgiveness. I must be forgiven. I have done wrong, God, against you and you only have I sinned. Will you forgive me? And not only have I done wrong, I am wrong. I was born wrong. Again, David said in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. I was even conceived in sin. And yet, wrapped up in that reality is this. We must also admit that only Jesus can pay for our sin and only God can forgive us of our sin. Amen? All right, now... Let me turn the coin and let's get into some good news. Because when you own the fact that you're a sinner, when you admit the fact that you need to be forgiven, God then says in promises in the form of his son, not just to forgive us, but then he says, I will be the propitiation. I will credit you all of Jesus' perfection. Then God promises to adopt us, give us his spirit, and that we are forever his. Amen. Now, that should excite you, all right? We are, because of this, empowered now to overcome sin. The gospel says that when you admit you're a sinner, when you ask for forgiveness, not only are you forgiven, but you're empowered to overcome sin. You're accepted and transformed. You're set free. Paul says we're a new creation. We're given not only the peace of God, but we are now at peace with God. God is no longer your judge. He is now and forever and eternity your father. Finally, someone is happy. The debts are paid. The bank of life is now full. So let me ask you again, are you a Christian? Is that you? Now, John chapter 17, and in fact, John this gospel is a great gospel where everyone wants to argue about things like eternal security and election and predestination and all of these little buzzwords that we have in our Bible and people want to argue all these things and we idea for or against the idea of election and what that means, which to some degree always makes me laugh. It really does. And it makes me laugh for two reasons. One, it makes me laugh that those who want to undermine God's sovereignty and election actually think that human beings can, should, or are able to tell God, an infinitely holy God, what justice and fairness is. That's just laughable. But secondly, 
For those that think they can explain the mind of God and believe in the sovereignty of God and God's power to elect and predestine, that they actually think that they understand the mind of God, which doesn't go against with Paul. And Paul, when he wrote in in, uh, Romans chapter 11, after 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11, when he comes to the end of it, Paul can't help himself but explain this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Now, watch this. Paul asks, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? So again, I say it's not just that Jesus prays for you. We need to know what Jesus prays because so much of our prayers and so much of what we think about Jesus praying for us is we actually want almost to put Jesus on the couch and we sit in this chair like we're Freud and go, tell me about your childhood as if we are his counselor. And it's not that. Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Now watch what he says. Or who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let me put it as simple as I can. Based on how Jesus prays in John 17, verses 7 and 8, according to these verses, the only way... The only way to tell whether a person is a Christian or not is not based on if you prayed a sinner's prayer. It's not based on if you walked an aisle and came to these steps that somehow got named the altar. It's not whether you knelt beside your bed. The only way one is a Christian or not is to see whether he or she believes and continues to believe in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I believe that Phil Collins must have been around in the first, first century. For those of you who are over 40 and know who Phil Collins is, he was the drummer for the band Genesis, and his great song was, Take a Look at Me Now. Because that's the testimony of the Christian. The testimony of a Christian isn't in 1972, on June of 1972 at 11.05, I knelt by my bed, You can't find that in in the Gospels. You won't find that in your Bible. Paul's testimony time was always, take a look at me now. Look at how Jesus is the Savior and Lord of my life now. Because let me ask you this. Why does Jesus love you? (laughs) If somebody asks you that, what's your answer? All of a sudden now... Jesus loves me, this I know. What? For the what? There we go. There, we, Adam. And it wasn't, it was even on key a little bit. See, why does Jesus love you? The Bible tells you. Why are you and I a Christian? Why, can I ask this, why should Jesus love you? What could you and I do? What do you want to do? This is why Paul says what he does. Who could give a gift to him that he might be repaid? And I want you to realize this. Through Christ, what he prays here proves to us that we know God's mission is Christ's mission. Do you see what should happen in our hearts and minds? We are back again to the power of being prayed for and over, but needing to know what is actually prayed for us and over us. But there is something I don't want us to miss. The reason that Peter, I asked this Peter, not the apostle Peter, this Peter, 
to read John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, is to remind us why John is writing this gospel. Those first 18 verses is the introduction to the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. But to as many as received him, well, listen, to them gave he power. Who? God gave them power to become the sons of God. Notice he read, not of will, not of blood, not of men, but of God. And then when he gets to the end of his gospel in John chapter 20, John now tells us this is the conclusion you need to come to. In John chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, why? So that you may believe, not just that you believe God exists, what? That you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what you and I have to believe. If you don't believe it, you're not a Christian. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Here's the result of believing that. And that by believing, you and I may have life in his name. Not in your church's name, not in your name, not in your family's heritage or tradition. It's in his name. So the great historic redemptive purpose of God in John chapter 17 focuses in on this little group of guys in the upper room in Jerusalem. Eleven guys. They're about, to, by the way, to forsake and deny their master. They're about to scatter like panicking sheep. <laughs> and just as Jesus knows this and bears witness in this passage, they will still not be lost. In fact, this 11, this motley crew of 11 ordinary men surrounded by a larger group of men and women will become the seed of the great worldwide harvest of God to the very last day to the glorified church who will behold his glory the glorified Son of God, when he completes his work by bringing into concrete existence in the world the messianic congregation of his kingdom. This is what the book of Revelation tells us about. So, the work of Jesus is not defined as some sort of general proclamation of the fatherhood of God and kind of the brotherhood of men. It's not, there's a God and there are some people. That's not what this is. Rather, John is giving us insight into Jesus' prayer so we know this. Jesus is sent of God on a mission. That mission is to become our mission as God creates his church. His church is consisting of men and women of flesh and blood extracted from the world to which they once belonged by the power of God. This is what we're talking about. And really what Jesus prays for them and for us is pretty simple. Yet it's also amazingly profound. And it's something we need to spend time on and we need to return to over and over again. Very quickly, three quick points. Number one, Jesus prays for us to accept his mission. If you're taking notes, write that down. Jesus prays in verse 7 that we would accept his mission. 
Jesus prays. Look at verse 7. He acknowledges before the disciple, before the Father, in the, the hearing of the disciples. They're walking through the Kedron Valley. They're on their way to, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And here he prays. Now, that is, at this time, the disciples know they've come to understand the mission from the Father and through the Son. In other words, Jesus says, Father, the disciples have come to a personal knowledge. They've caught a vision of God the Father through me. They now know that Jesus is not just a Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. I can imagine that maybe some of them thought about Isaiah 53. As Jesus prayed this in front of them, maybe they started to recite to each other, yet it was the will of God to crush him. He was put him to grief And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I wonder if they recalled Jesus' calming of the sea. Do you remember what happens when they're afraid and Jesus is asleep and the boat is being swamped and they wake Jesus up and they say, don't you care? We're going to perish. And Jesus gets up and says, oh, you of little faith. And what he basically says, he basically says, enough. Be still. And if you remember in John, we're told, and they were amazed that even the wind and the waves obeyed him. I wonder if Peter and James and John remembered the transfiguration when Jesus' godness from inside of him broke out and he shone so white, it was whiter than any white they could have ever imagined and it drove them to their faces. I wonder if Andrew and others thought of Jesus' baptism when, J- when John the Baptist pulls him up out of that water and, and a dove descends on him as the Spirit of the Lord and a, a voice says, Be- Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. I wonder if Bartholomew remembered Nazareth when Jesus faced that angry mob and he walks right through the crowd untouched. I wonder, did Nathaniel and Simon the Zealot remember how Jesus prayed before he called Lazarus out of that grave? Now we understand when Jesus prays this in verse 7, this statement is part of a larger work of God. This is not some random verse. It's not a random prayer. And notice, it's not based on the ability of the disciples to act at that moment to have already made all the connections between Jesus, God, and their salvation. I don't have to remind you, they don't get it. For at least up until the resurrection, they're still very much confused. Does it not give you both hope and motivation? Does it not fill us with hope that our imperfection never stops Christ's perfection? That our struggles and battles can't diminish the love of God and the mission of mercy and grace? So when you wrestle with your fears, and let's be honest, we all do. When we question and doubt God, and let's be honest, we've all done it. Some of you might be doing it here this morning. When we've all wrestled and had to own and experience the pride that can get the best of us, when we know what we should do and the ease and pleasure that tempts us, can you not relate and feel Paul's emotional, spiritual journey in Romans 7? Do you remember what he wrote? He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. This was Paul. Paul writes this. He goes, in my flesh, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
It's almost like he's saying, every day of my life is like a New Year's resolution. I have all of the best plans in the world, and it's only a matter of minutes, hours, weeks, or days before I don't do it. He says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can I get a witness? Have you not felt that? He goes, now, if I do what is not... Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He, he, I love this about Paul. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. This is a guy who raised people from the dead. This is a guy who prayed and sang with Silas, and God shook a jail. This is a, and he goes, you know what? I just know sin dwells in me. I'm a wretch. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. How many times have you got up on a Monday morning and said, this week, I'm going to read my Bible every day. This week, I'm going to pray. This week, I'm not going to speed. This week, I'm not going to argue with my wife. This week, I'm not going to get mad at the kids. This week, I'm going to put an honest eight hours in at work. And then you don't even get out of the driveway. And life went to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, one honest guy, one honest guy. And he's going to Australia. That's why he's saying that now. He says this. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In other words, Paul is being honest. He's like, I know when I read my Bible and I pray, I know that I delight. I want what God wants for me. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then he finished, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you know how tragic it would be if this is where the Bible stopped? But Romans keeps going, and Paul says, thanks be to God, now watch this, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice he doesn't say, thanks be to God as I try harder. Thanks be to God as I force myself, as I will myself. No, he's already admitted, I can't pull this off. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, then chapter 8 comes verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. (laughs) See, it's never been about you. It's never been about me. It's always about him. That's where we find our power. Can you now sense the urgent warning of James, the half-brother of Jesus, when he told us in James chapter 1 about temptation? And he says, don't let anyone say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted of God. Because God cannot tempt or be tempted with evil. Each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by their own desires. And then desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin. And sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. So you see, why? Why is it so important for Jesus to have prayed this in verse 7? Well, think about it. There are two ways, isn't there, that Satan and our flesh seems to work in our lives? And they're the two of the great selves. Selves. I don't have a lisp. I'm just trying to say selves with plurals. All right? Self-righteousness. I'm not perfect, but I'm better than all of you, right? I would say that this city is filled with self-righteousness. We are a religious city. I have never met anybody in this city who tells me they're perfect. I have met almost everybody in this city who tells me, but they're good enough to go to heaven because they're not as bad as somebody else. So there's self-righteousness or there is self-loathing. 
Why bother? A lot of people in the city, and that number gets bigger, are buying into Clint Eastwood. His great famous line, right? I'll see you in hell. And too many people have now moved from self-righteousness to self-loathing. God can't love me. I'm not safeable. I'm too bad. So you know what? There's no hope. I might as well squeeze out of this life whatever I can for however many days, months, or years I have. And when I die, it's over or I'll go to hell. This resonates with me because I was raised in a self-righteous world. But God in his mercy and grace saved me from my self-loathing. I remember being on a bed in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia when I was 21 years of age, newly married, arguing with God and figuring out for the first time in my life that I had been around religion all those years and did not have a relationship with Jesus. And I remember saying, either you're real or I will get off this bed and I will go live my life however I want to live it. And I remember saying on that bed, and I will see you in hell. And God in his mercy and God in his grace wouldn't allow this self-loathing, false humility sinner to get off his bed until he made himself known to me. And he saved my soul. And I can tell you that from that day to this one, I have never once doubted my salvation because it's never been about me. I have tried to run from God and I have sinned in ways that would horrify you and embarrasses me, would embarrass my family, embarrass my friends, but Jesus is the one who saved me. And because he saved me, he can pray this prayer in verse 7 that says, I have given them a people and they know that I am God and that you have sent me. Because no matter what happens in my life, good, bad, ugly, or indifferent, God draws me back to himself because I'm a child of the king. And that can be your reality. And so not only does he pray that you and I would accept his mission, but then he prays for us to trust his mission. Look at verse 8. He concludes this section of prayer regarding the glory of the Father and Son by confirming that the mission, the message of the Father has achieved its purpose. He's basically glorifying God in prayer. He's saying, Father, everything that you said we were going to do, we've done. Spurgeon put it like this. Pray that you may be holy, humble, zealous, and patient. Pray that you may have communion with Christ and enter into the banqueting house of his love. Look at verse 8 and watch and notice how many times God says things, Jesus prays things in his imperative. For I have given them the words that you gave me. Jesus says, I gave them, Father, the words that you gave me. And watch this. And they have received them. It's not, I hope they'll receive them. They've mostly received them. They're getting there. No, they have received them. Now watch this. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. Could there be any better hope and motivation? There are three stages of discipleship in this verse, church. Notice the first two are in the opening clause. First, 
God gives the message to Jesus, and Jesus passes it on to them, and they accept it. Secondly, the result is they know with certainty, I have come from you, meaning they have come to know Jesus' mission as their own. Once you know the hope of Jesus, aren't you motivated by Jesus? If you have been saved and you are motivated by the hope and forgiveness and love and mercy of God, does it not motivate you to want to tell other people about it? Ah, see, now we're getting to the heart of the issue in our churches. You can give mental assent to this, but do you own this like a warm blanket? Do you cuddle up in it? On your worst day, do you wrap yourself in the hope of the assurance of Christ? On your best day, do you wrap yourself in the power and the ability of Christ for you to even have a best day? This is the difference. So Jesus is our representative of God, but it also means Jesus is our representative to God. And this is why that video from Alistair Begg is so powerful. How many of you have seen it? Have you seen this video going around on Facebook? A lot of hands are going. And he says about the thief on the cross, and he dies, and he gets to heaven, and he says the angel meets him, or Peter meets him, and he says, why should I let you in? And he says, well, the man on the middle cross said so. And everybody claps, and we all get emotional, and all this kind of stuff. But you know what? If you'll allow me, I'm going to, in fact, correct my brother just a little bit, because it wasn't an angel that met him. It wasn't Peter that met him. It was, in fact, God himself that met him. And instead of asking, why should I let you in? God said, welcome home, my child. Now that's worth getting excited about. Jesus back in John 6 explicitly said, all that the Father gives me, are you ready for this? Will come to me. Not might, not hope, but will. So we can trust God's mission. Listen to me now. As a pleased Savior, Jesus looks down upon us with confidence that his power and work in us will please the Father. Why, you ask? Because the Father must be pleased with his Son's work. One of the most important desires of Christ for us is to trust him and see him as God's Messiah. He is both Savior and he is Lord. And this is what will give you hope to wrestle with sin and motivate you to obey God, which means my last point is... Jesus prays for us to obey his mission. The intimate connection between knowledge and understanding, between belief and faith, is in this prayer, reminds you and I, the reader, God cannot be known without faith, but also that in faith there is no certainty that it can be properly called knowledge. In other words, you've got to have both. Our problem in the city of St. John's, our problem in too many of our churches, is we've got churches filled with knowledge and no faith. Or we have churches filled with quote-unquote faith, but it's faith not at all informed by knowledge. And you'll notice it's not the size of your faith, it's not the strength of your faith, it's the object of your faith. Now don't lose the connection between verses 7 and verse 8. They knew, and yet they didn't fully understand. They believed, and yet their faith was still weak. But they still fought. They still prayed. They still read. They still waited. They still trusted. Put this together with Matthew chapter 28, when he, when he gives us that great commission. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. After this, you will be my witnesses. Luke 24, wait here until the Spirit comes. And don't ever forget what this teaches us. They are discouraged. They're disheartened. They're confused. You might even say they're defeated. They're having a crisis of faith. Jesus has been killed. He's been buried. But he does rise from the dead. 
You remember that great passage in Luke 24 when he walks up to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus? And with this conversation, he says, why are you guys all sad? And he goes, they said, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened? They look at him and go, are you the only dude that doesn't watch the news? Right? Notice their struggle. We had hoped that he, Jesus, was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And then watch, listen to the words of the risen Savior. He looks at these two men, he says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And watch this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Do you see it? He brought them back to the scriptures. He brought them back to the Bible. The old child's song is still true today. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. That's what it is. Now notice, when Jesus prayed, their eyes were open. They recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Now watch what they said. Did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Do you want to have a spiritual awakening? Read your Bible and pray. Do you want to have revival? Read your Bible and pray. Do you want to have greater community in church? Read your Bible and pray. Do we want to affect this city? Read our Bibles and pray. And then John 17, 7 to 8 happens. This played out over and over again throughout the whole book of Acts. They were in the upper room, 120 of them, in prayer, in the Word of God, in community, and they found the strength to wait upon the Lord. In Acts 4, we're told there's no name given amongst men whereby we must be saved. They saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. Do you want to have power? Do you want to have insight? Do you want to have strength? Do you want to have zeal and passion? Read your Bible and pray. This is the path we must, path we must take as disciples. Belief, acceptance, obedience. So, listen, Calvary, the tomb is empty, but the throne is full. Let me say that again. The tomb is empty, but the throne is full. Amen. Right? It's full of the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is what he prays for us. Father, I have given you to them. Father, they have received you. Father, they are yours. Father, they will stay with you. So let me ask you. He prays that his mission will be our mission. He prays that we will trust his mission. He prays that we'll obey his mission. So here's my question. Are you, are we on mission? Jesus' prayer here is to make a difference in our lives practically. It means you've got to stop listening, listening to yourself and start listening to Jesus, the one who knows yourself better than you do. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it like this, I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression in a sense is this, we allow ourself to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. 
That's why John said in 1 John 3, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, Christ is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. We must pray and be people who read God's word. If you don't spend time with God, then you shouldn't be surprised when you feel far from God. So are you hope-filled with this prayer of Jesus? Are you also brought peace? According to Jesus, faith is not something attained by us. Rather, it's given to us. Notice the frequency by which Jesus uses the term gave and given. Five times in two verses. And this is why Paul said that salvation and faith are gift of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Watch this. So what's the gift of God? The grace that's been saved through faith. It's all a gift from God. That means if you're struggling to receive Christ, or you're unsure, you're among the people of Christ, you should ask God to give you faith and salvation. (laughs) In the end, as in the beginning... Faith in Jesus is the gift of God, just as the people of Christ are those whom the Father has given His Son. So Calvary Baptist, let me ask you, are we seeking to be among them, receiving eternal life? Then ask the Father who gives grace in Jesus' name. And if you're here this morning and you're like, Steve, I don't know if I know Jesus. I've been coming to the church. I've been hearing sermons. I've been going to the different fellowships and things, but I don't know. (laughs) Then pray and ask Jesus to save you, then you will know. People ask me all the time, Steve, are you a Calvinist? Do you believe in election? Do you believe in this stuff and that stuff? And here's what I'll say to you. I have never met the sinner who came to God who God didn't want. Let me say that again. I've never met the sinner who came to God who God didn't want. Do you want to know if you're one of the elect? Come to God. Do you want to know if you are elect? Be of God. And then let us go out there and tell everyone. He prayed for his mission to be our mission. Will it be? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, the depths of this prayer humble me. I never get to the end of a sermon with all the physical energy and not feel completely inadequate. And that's why I've tried to read as much of your word to my friends and my family. Lord, I have my own biological family here and I have my church family here and I have friends and visitors here. And Lord, the only thing I want them all to know, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter where you're from. If we will but say, oh God, give me the faith to believe in you, you will hear that prayer. So let the hurting and the downcast pray to you. Let the self-righteous and the self-loather pray to you. Lord, may we as a church be committed to read the word and to pray. May we as husbands and wives, as families, as moms and dads and grandparents, may we not just say, I'm praying for you, but may we pray. May we read John 17 again and hear Jesus pray for us. So Lord, if there is someone here hurting, someone here discouraged, distracted, angry, bitter, 
hanging on to their self-righteousness, clinging to their reason for existence. May they know the joy and the peace and the freedom to say, oh God, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. And for the Christian who feels defeated, discouraged, disheartened, may they hear and see what Jesus did for these men on the road to Emmaus when he opened up and reasoned with them from the Scriptures. May we pray to you and say, Oh God, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Lord, may we speak the name of Jesus over our lives, our emotions, our hearts, and our minds. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand.